Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and racial capitalism and the beauty of resistance? I'm Rev. Sarah Howell Miller. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a United Methodist minister, and I live in what is currently known as Winston-Salem, North Carolina, on the ancestral lands of the Chiraw and Catawba peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We do this work remembering we are building up a new world, This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The gospel text for this fourth Sunday after Epiphany comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 21 through 30. Jesus began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Two weeks ago, Nicole Hannah-Jones gave a speech at a private New York City social club in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Before the event, the 1619 Project journalist learned that some attendees believed that she was an unworthy choice of a speaker and that her work and activism dishonored Dr. King's memory. Instead of choosing to soften her tone in response to the preemptive criticism, Hannah-Jones dug in. 
She began her speech, of course, in the year 1619, detailing the history of how enslaved Africans were brought to America in bondage. She outlined the ways in which this nation's history of racism is entangled in capitalism and militarism, and how only a radical shift in our social and economic systems could remedy that injustice. She bluntly called out the failure of white Americans, especially moderate and liberal white Americans, to make any serious and sustained effort at dismantling racism in this country. As she spoke, an uncomfortable silence fell over the room, and Hannah Jones said that she could sense the indignation that the mostly white attendees felt over the statements she was making. And then she dropped the real bomb. That speech, up to that point, had not been her words. Rather, all of her comments were direct quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. This crowd was shocked. They had no idea that Dr. King had so many radical convictions. Probably they, like many white people, could quote his line about being judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, but not much else. And as I worked with our gospel text from Luke, I thought about how we have whitewashed our image of Martin Luther King Jr. I thought about how white Americans have made him the poster child of a colorblind society whose existence he would have vehemently denied. I thought about how starkly the over 90% approval approval rating of King today contrasts with the 75% disapproval rating at the time of his death. I thought about how we have taken his commitment to nonviolence to mean non-confrontation when King was committed to nonviolent direct action that unveiled and disrupted racism, militarism, capitalism, and more. And all of that made me think of Jesus, of his rejection in his hometown, of how we celebrate a domesticated and inoffensive version of him today that would have been unrecognizable to his contemporaries. We do this in so many different ways, from how we talk about Jesus, to how we claim to follow him, to how we picture him in our mind's eye and depict him in visual media. At the church where I currently serve, we recently started our first confirmation class since before the pandemic. And in confirmation, our young people gather to explore their connection to the beliefs and values of Christianity, of our denomination, of our local church and the community. This past week, we talked about the nature of God. We reflected on metaphors for and images of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit in Scripture and in the world throughout history. And during our lesson, we looked at diverse images of Jesus. We started by contrasting one of a Middle Eastern man with brown skin and dark hair with one of a doe-eyed painting of Christ with blonde hair and blue eyes. We held up images of Jesus as Ghanaian, Chinese, Navajo, African-American, Maori, and more. We explored images of Jesus as a woman, including one of a black female Christ on the cross. And as we looked at all this sacred artwork, I asked these young people why they thought it mattered how we see Jesus or God in terms of race, nationality, or gender. And one of our young people spoke up and said it shouldn't matter that we should be able to picture God in whatever way helps us connect to God. And I told them that they were absolutely right and that because we live in a world where we see way more images of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus than anything else, it's important that we be intentional about what images we seek out and share and internalize. I asked our confirmands what they think happens when we constantly see images of God as a white man and how that affects the way we view white men and other people in the world around us. They answered, it makes us think that white men are better 
than other people. It shouldn't matter how we picture God or Jesus. This is the aspiration of Dr. King in his I Have a Dream speech when he spoke of people being judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But it does matter while we live under white supremacist patriarchy. Today, people often take that King quote out of context and use it as a shield against any talk of or action around racial justice. But King was not pointing to an existing reality. He was dreaming, aspiring, hoping, praying. He was lamenting the reality that people have been and continue to be judged by the color of their skin and not the content of their character. Unfortunately, we are as ready to take the easy and comforting quotes of Dr. King out of context for our own benefit as we are to claim an incomplete reading of the ministry and message of Jesus, as his audience does in our scripture lesson for this week. This passage from Luke describes the event that begins Jesus' public ministry, according to the Gospel of Luke. We may be more familiar with the verses that immediately precede where we pick up in the text. Jesus goes to the temple, he opens the scroll, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is as much of a mission statement for Jesus' public ministry as anything we get in writing. And it comes not in new words he crafts for the occasion, but in the voice of the prophet Isaiah. And in Matthew and Mark's versions of this story, it's Jesus reading from the scroll and declaring the scripture fulfilled that sparks indignation in his listeners. But Luke has more to say. When Jesus reads from the scroll, the congregation is at first amazed at the gracious words that come from his lips. But they miss the point, and Jesus has to drive it home. This good news isn't for them. Or at least it's not just for them. We'll get there. Rather than confining this proclamation to God's people Israel, Jesus declares that this good news is for foreigners, for non-Jews, for outcasts and outsiders. Jesus reminds his audience of the work of two other prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who ministered respectively to a widow at Zarephath and to Naaman the Syrian, and not primarily to widows or lepers in Israel. In this context, Isaiah's words of liberation for the poor, the prisoner, the oppressed, it's not a word for Israel. It's for those outside the bounds of God's covenant. And this really ticks off those gathered in the synagogue. I need to pause for a moment and note what some scholars have pointed out, that the Gospel of Luke has in it traces of anti-Semitism and supersessionism. So supersessionism is the idea that the new covenant in Jesus supersedes God's covenant with Israel. This shows up all the time in Christianity when people claim that scripture in the Greek New Testament nullifies the law of the Hebrew Bible. This claim is nonsensical. Literally everything Jesus says in this text from Luke is a reference to the Hebrew Bible, and it also lays the groundwork for dangerous anti-Jewish sentiment. And this contributes to the current reality that while Jewish people make up only 2% of the U.S. population, hate crimes against Jewish people made up 54.9% of all religious bias crimes in 2020. Anytime we see negative depictions of Jews in the New Testament, 
in the New Testament, we must remember that this was written in a time when Christianity was beginning to separate itself from Judaism, and that such stories may reflect more of the writer's polemic than historical fact. And even if we take this story at face value, perhaps a better way to understand what's happening when Jesus is rejected at Nazareth might be to compare it to what happened at that New York social club two weeks ago when Nicole Hannah-Jones stood up to speak. She spoke in the words of the attendees' professed hero, only to demonstrate to them that their understanding of Dr. King had been whitewashed to suit their preferences. In the synagogue, Jesus spoke in the words of the Hebrew prophets, only for his listeners to realize that they may have misjudged their place in these stories and proclamations. In a sense, they are not unlike the white Americans today who are uncomfortable at how they are decentered in the 1619 Project. But such attitudes and reactions represent a zero-sum approach that's not a part of God's reality. They presume that if God enters into a relationship with another people, that it somehow compromises God's covenant with Israel. And if black people are centered in a telling of American history, that white people will be erased. That if people who have not previously had access to resources or power or community or love get that access, somehow we who already had it will necessarily have less. And there are times in which redistribution of money, of power, of resources is a necessary step toward justice. But our anxiety about that reality stems from the sad fact that we live in a scarcity mindset when God has repeatedly promised abundance. The Netflix horror miniseries Midnight Mass has disturbing themes of religious fundamentalism and fanaticism, themes perhaps best represented by the holier-than-thou character Bev Keen. Bev is a bit of a tyrant in the show, constantly judging others, setting herself apart with her self-righteous piety and devotion. And near the end of the series, Bev is confronted by another character who challenges her, saying, God doesn't love you more than anyone else. Why does that upset you so much? And Bev is practically offended by the possibility that God might love another person, especially a person she considers less good or holy, that God might love that person just as much as God loved her. Not even that God might love that person more, but that God didn't love them any less. For Bev, God's love was a scarce commodity that she had to earn and hoard, a thing that if it were given to anyone else, would compromise it for her. In his book, The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets, Nahum Ward Lev says that the virtues of the liberation journey are a commitment to relationship, awareness of abundance, and an attitude of gratitude and generosity. Anytime we believe that another's liberation or acceptance undermines our own, we are really focused more on our power, position, and privilege than on true liberation. We are operating in a scarcity mindset, and we therefore make freedom and justice scarce for all. For no one is free until everyone is free. The Combahee River Collective was a black feminist lesbian socialist organization that met regularly together from 1974 to 1980 in Boston, Massachusetts. And this group was part of a movement reacting to the racism of white feminists. And they took their name from the Combahee River where Harriet Tubman planned and led an action that freed 750 enslaved people. In 1977, the Combahee River Collective released a statement that says, if black women were free... It would mean that everyone else would have to be free, 
since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all the systems of oppression. If the most marginalized among us are free, then we all get free, because the systems that oppress the most marginalized also oppress the most privileged, if to a dramatically different degree. When black, indigenous, and people of color, queer, and trans, and non-binary people get free, we all get free. When women, disabled people, immigrants, prisoners, sex workers, and drug users get free, we all get free. When the poor, the prisoner, and the oppressed get free, we all get free. But unless and until we stop treating liberation and freedom as a zero-sum game where we have to compete against our siblings when the deck is already stacked, we will never truly get free. The thing is, if people of privilege think we're already free, if we mistake our supremacist power and position for freedom, if the status quo is benefiting us, if we are comfortable with the way things are, it will be harder for us to recognize the need for liberation. It was hard for Jesus' listeners in the synagogue to hear him speak of God's provision for those outside of the covenant with Israel because they thought the boundaries were clearly defined and that they were within them. It was hard for the event attendees who heard Dr. King's words in Nicole Hannah-Jones' mouth to reckon with the fact that the man whose words they would use to justify themselves likely would have seen them not as heroes, but as stumbling blocks. It is hard for those of us with privilege to decenter ourselves and remember that all people are made in the image of God, no matter how hard we try to make God in our own images of white supremacy, patriarchy, and empire. Jewish New Testament scholar Amy Jo Levine says that if we read one of Jesus' parables and think, oh, I like that, then we've probably missed the point. This is true of parables and it is true of prophets. Sometimes the good news we need doesn't sound like good news to us at first. Recently, a colleague of mine at the North Carolina Council of Churches shared about an experience with a series of clergy breakfasts they do to educate pastors and church leaders around harm reduction, this set of practices and principles that offer safe supplies and human dignity to people who use drugs. And this colleague told us about one woman who came to three different events that they held. The first time, she said she left angry. The second time, she left intrigued. And the third time, she left converted to the good news of harm reduction. When the good news stings for us with power and privilege, we must keep listening, especially when it does sound like good news to those on the margins. If we have never really listened to Dr. King's radical message of economic and sociopolitical transformation, we might have left Nicole Hannah-Jones' speech angry. If we have never fully understood that Jesus and the prophets bringing good news to the poor wasn't just a metaphor, but a call to redistributive justice, we might have left the synagogue angry. And that is okay, as long as we come back. And that is what we do in the church. We come back again and again to the words of the prophets until they truly sound like good news for the poor and therefore for all. And in the meantime, we can, within an anti-racist, anti-oppression framework, lift up the virtues of the liberation journey outlined by Nam Ward-Lev, commitment to relationship, awareness of abundance, and an attitude of gratitude and generosity. 
We can lay aside competitiveness and scarcity and start to work toward a world in which the most marginalized among us are free and therefore we all are free because all systems of oppression have been destroyed. This is the dream. This is the prophecy. This is the liberating word we get to hear, to share, to be about in a world that is hungry for good news. The spirit of the Lord is on us all. And isn't it about time we all got free? committed to getting white folks on board for dismantling white supremacy, please make a donation to Surge. We split every donation with a movement partner doing great work. You can donate on, online at bit.ly slash surgesf or find our podcast page at surge.org. We'll share the link on social media too. Thanks for helping support this podcast and organizing white people to show up for racial justice and the new world we're building together. And thanks as always for joining us. We'd love to hear from you all, and especially folks of color and non-Christian folks, by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages, or filling out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for Surge Faith updates and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. And of course, deep gratitude to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens. Oh,